Go ahead and grab them and go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be going through verses 12 through 19. We have about three more sermons left in our 1 Peter Holiness and Hope series. Let me start us out by praying, if you bow your heads with me. Lord, we remember, as we just sang, we remember the lowly beginnings of your birth, the way that you came to us so humbly, so that we could one day humble ourselves and know your goodness and your faithfulness and your kindness to us. So we ask that you would humble us now as we open your word, as we receive the grace and mercy that these divine words breathed out by you would have for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen. Amen. Peter never expected to suffer. Okay, this has to be known, or as, uh, as Charles Dickens tells us about Ebenezer Scrooge, no good can come of this story. Okay, Peter never expected to suffer. He never expected to see Jesus suffer. He never expected to suffer himself in those three years that Jesus walked the earth and was mentoring and teaching Peter everything that he said he was going to do, which was to suffer and die and rise again. It was an expectation that Peter did not have. And we find in our own lives that one of the prevailing themes in our lives is that we don't expect bad things to happen to us. Unless some of us are those people that are just cynical and we just think everything bad is going to happen to us all the time, right? But something that we are faced with, something that we struggle with, are expectations, right? We want things to go our way. We want things to turn out the way that we always planned on them turning out. And as we dive into this particular, these particular passages today, verses 12 through 19, we're going to be dealing with what God expects us to expect. And it's a, it's a little ominous in places. Um, my wife and I were walking through our neighborhood the other day, and uh, we're walking by a, a guy just up the, up the street, across the street from us, really cool dude named Drew. We're friends with him. And uh, he just had this massive pile of, of leaves, you know, on, on, his, on his lawn, you know, all carefully, but, you know, kind of the Charlie Brown pile, you know, just waiting for, and then, you know, out of the back, literally, I'm not making this up, like the kid comes running and like dives into the pile and it's, you know, it's all, you know, and it just, it literally feels like the Charlie Brown thing. And so I'm walking by and I'm like, I'm like, Drew, I'm all that, that's a nice pile of leaves, man. And he goes, you notice I don't, you notice there's no trees in my lawn, on my lawn, right? And I went, I went, well, that, yeah, I, go, I, I hadn't noticed that, but that's, that's, that's a good, that's very astute of you to, you know, point that out to us. And he goes, and I go, so what, what ha- like, where do these, like, do you know how to manufacture leaves? Do you have, like, a, a leave machine, or, you know, what do you have? And he said, no, he goes, um, one day I got home, and my kids had got, gone to everybody's lawn and wheelbarrowed over, like, all of their leaves and dropped them onto the lawn, you know? And he's just sitting there, and I'm like, I don't have a comeback for that. I don't know what to say. And, um, but it really kind of struck me that um, this idea of expectations, sometimes we're given things that we don't expect, and sometimes it causes us, even us who hold to the Orthodox Christian faith, it causes us to turn cynical and to try to understand why God does some of the things 
that he does. And we understand Peter, we understand that this is a brother that did not expect to suffer. He didn't expect Christ to suffer. In fact, in Matthew 16, we see Peter rebuking Jesus, saying, don't say such things when Jesus told Peter, hey, I am going to suffer and die and then three days rise again. Peter said, don't even talk like that. And then we remember on the night before Jesus' death, we remember Peter and the rest of the disciples, after they had just told him that they would go so far as to die with him, they still didn't believe that he was going to die. And then when the soldiers took him away to be tried, they fled. They abandoned him. And so we come to the table in life with certain expectations that either have not been fulfilled or that are going to be filled, but that in general, we actually don't have a lot of clue about what they should be. And what we're going to see here as we dive into the passage is that God is actually giving us a particular kind of expectation. He's given the church something that they should expect. He's also given us something that exceeds the very expectation that he lays out for us here. And what we're going to see here uh, today in verses 12 through 19 is that suffering, something that we've been talking a lot about, something that I wouldn't say Peter is, you know, really glossed over, but uh, something that he is really diving all the way in. He's diving into the deep end with us today for it, is that suffering is how God purifies his people in preparation for glory. And that is really the main thing that we're going to learn today as we dive in. So let's just do that with no further ado. First Peter 4, I'm going to pick up in verse 12. I'm going to read the entire passage, and then we're going to go back and just step our way through it a little bit. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then finally in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what we see here again is suffering is how God purifies you, how God purifies the church, his people, and preparation for glory. So right off the top, what we want to see here is the way that Peter addresses the church, he uses this phrase, beloved, again, because he knows what he's about to say to them, okay? He knows the words that he's going to deliver to these people who are already experiencing trials or who are uh, anticipating experience trials. He wants them to know that he loves them, that God loves them, so he uses this language, he uses this word, beloved, which really is just being loved like a child, right? Somebody who is beloved. We remember when God said about Jesus after Jesus was baptized, he said, this is my beloved son. This is my special child who I have affection for, who is special to me. And so Peter comes right off the top saying, beloved, remember, I love you. Remember what I'm about to say to you. It's coming from you uh, like from a fatherly heart, right? 
I love you like you're my children, so listen to what I have to say in light of that. And then he says, don't be surprised, and this is shocking and kind of ominous language for us, right, as we get into this. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's like he's making an argument. He says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be astonished. Don't be astonished that something abnormal is happening to you right now because in the life of a Christian who is called to suffering, this is the life that God has called you to. And you know what's weird about that is I just think we, man, we just don't have a category for that, do we, in our lives? Because suffering does feel abnormal to us, doesn't it? Suffering does feel strange to us. Sometimes I wonder if it's because we have designed our church for it to be that way, right? Like we turn our church into, you know, kind of a country club setting, right? And it allows us not to have a category for when like hard things come upon us, when we're faced with fiery trials. In other words, we don't you know, we, we, we get a guy up here that stands up here and he smiles, a ba- uh, you know, a great big beaming smile, and his whole message is that everything is great. You're like, yeah, we don't never have to worry about that with you, Big R. For some reason, you're, you're always a little negative. Well, I, you know, pray for me in that, okay? But at the same time, we have to have a category for what it looks like to not be surprised as if suffering and trials were something strange that were happening to us. That's why we kind of sing the songs that we do. You notice there were some songs of lament this morning. You know, we sing a song called, Though You Slay Me, right? How do we sing a song like that? How do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, we do that because of passages like this, because God has called the church to suffering. And he says, not only have I called you to suffering, but it shouldn't seem strange or abnormal to you. R.C. Sproul kind of brings up a really interesting question. He wrote a book called Surprised by Suffering, and he actually brings up this really amazing question. He said, Christians shouldn't wonder why they suffer as much as Christians should wonder why they suffer so little. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? That's interesting to ponder. Because on one hand, we can look at things, we can look at friends, we can look at family members, we can look back at our own lives, we can settle ourselves in the current uh, posture and position of our own lives, and we can say, man, I am going through things right now. Um, Why is God bearing down so heavy and so hard on me without ever acknowledging or recognizing all of the times that God's blessing has been bestowed upon you. Like, we don't acknowledge the days where everything is going our way, do we? We don't acknowledge the times where, every, where there's food on the table, there's a job, there's healthy children, right? We have a life that we would consider blessed. We have a life of ease. We have a life of prosperity. We rarely thank God in those times, but we tend to get a little critical of God when we have to experience a little bit of suffering. But Peter, what he's saying here is, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. You know, you got to love Peter, right? Like, I just, I, I, I just, I, I found that as I've grown older, like, I don't have patience for people that try to water things down, right? So Peter doesn't just say, don't be surprised when, you know, things don't go that great. He says, fiery trial. And by fiery, we remember he used this language in, ver- in chapter 1, verse 7. He said, hey, your faith is more precious than gold refined by fire. So when he uses this word fiery, he's talking about a refiner's fire. 
He's talking about something that is meant to be a purifier of our faith. And how God does that is by taking us through trials. And we think about trials, what's, what's helpful about that word is that a trial feels like something temporary. And even remember, Peter said, you will be grieved by various trials for a season. But a trial for us is something temporary. Some of you guys, how many of you guys maybe are into like track and field or maybe, uh, maybe some form of motorsports? Yeah, thank you, Tim Black. He's like, I-, I am the track and field guy, Ronnie. I just want you to acknowledge that right now. But uh, some of us that kind of watch those, those, uh, those kind of races or those kind of sports, what happens is the day before, the morning before the actual race, what they'll do is they'll do these things called timed trials, right? They'll do qualifiers. And what happens is, is they're testing the skill of the runners or the riders or the drivers to see where they stand. And so what Peter's saying here is that you are going to go through fiery trials, and the reason for those fiery trials that come upon you are to test you. So how many of you guys have ever been enrolled in like a school setting at any point in your life? Oh, some of you guys never went to school. That's interesting. Um, but when we go to school, right, I, I mean, the, the, the thing, the expectation that we have when we enroll in high school, when we enroll in elementary school, when we enroll in college, the expectation that we have is that teachers are going to test us, right? Like, the thing that always I found hilarious is that, you know, you, you're in fourth or fifth grade, right, and you, you come in on that day, on that Wednesday, and you sit down, and the teacher's like, surprise quiz. And it's kind of like, I mean, kind of, I mean... Isn't that kind of what you do? Don't you, like, give us quizzes and tests? I mean, but it's the same, oh, my gosh, like, she gave us a quiz. It's like, that, that's literally why she shows up every day, is to test you, is to quiz you. Her job is to mature you in the knowledge that she's been giving you so that someday you can actually make it to the next grade and someday you can be a responsible citizen with a level of knowledge that matches your age. And so the same thing here that Peter kind of talks about right from the beginning in verse 12. He says, don't be surprised. Fiery trials will come upon you to test you. Don't think that it's strange. But here's where he kind of gives us a little bit of a twist as we get into 13. And this, is, this, is not, this does not just sort of go in with our regular way of thinking. But look at what Peter says here in 13. But he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory as is revealed. We remember Peter, after Christ ascended to heaven, after he was starting to plant those early churches, we remember Peter, I mean, it was not going well for Peter and his boys. I mean, they were suffering trials and persecution. Nobody wanted that early church to, to lift off the ground. Nobody wanted that thing to start. And Peter and his boys... They suffered through physical, physical persecution. And at one point in, in Acts chapter 5, Peter says, we were rejoicing. He said they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Right? So somehow, somehow, in the economy of God allowing us to go through the fiery suffering and trials that he does to test us, somehow suffering is the very thing that produces an increased joy in us inasmuch as we share in Christ's sufferings. In fact, Paul even talked about sharing in Christ's sufferings to understand the mind of Christ as he went through the suffering to provide righteousness and redemption for our sins. So 
yes, there's an expectation here that we are going to suffer. But with suffering, oddly enough, and I don't know where any of you are at right now with that, with suffering, but oddly enough, suffering, what comes with suffering, is rejoicing. Maybe some of you have experienced that. You didn't experience the kind of rejoicing that you did until God put you through a fiery trial. And so then he goes to 14 and he says this. He, he talks about sharing in Christ's suffering and he actually brings it down to even a lower common denominator here. And he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. So in other words, even if you are insulted, like I don't know, I, I mean, I, I don't like being insulted, but I don't feel like I'm as, as sensitive about it as when I was, you know, like seven years old. You know, but Peter says right here, even if you are insulted, we remember how Christ was insulted. He was mocked for putting his trust in God. But he says, even if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So even if you are slandered for being a Christian, for bearing the name of Christ, when you have people that come to you and say, you are a fool to believe what you believe. Maybe that's happened to some of you guys. You've sat down with people and they've said, I don't get it. Like, this just sounds like fairy tales to me. Like, you're trying to tell me that in an age of science and reason, you are actually going to believe this stuff? Like, is that possible for the day and age that we live in? Peter says, even if, even if you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So it's in those moments, in those moments of being insulted, in those moments of suffering, that the Holy Spirit actually works in us to strengthen us. The Holy Spirit works inside of us to reassure us. The Holy Spirit works inside of us to bless us. But how would we know that unless we were in the middle of a fiery trial of which we needed the Holy Spirit to come and intervene and invade our hearts and reassure us that, again, we're not the only ones that have gone through this. Christ went through this before us. So with suffering comes rejoicing, oddly enough, in the life of a Christian. And then Peter adds a warning as we get into 15, and he says this. He says, but, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as, I love this last one, a meddler, right? And what I think is funny is you, like, you, look, at that, you look at that lineup right there, right? And it's like, uh, don't let anybody suffer as a murderer. And you're like, no, nah, okay, you know, I haven't killed anybody recently. Um, you, you look at thief and you go, nah, you know, do I have to pay all that money to Uncle Sam every year? I mean, you know, can I, can I fudge a little bit on that? Or an evildoer, you know, and again, that's just categorically, that just widens everything that we think everybody else does besides us. And then as part of this crazy lineup, he adds meddler into that. He says, also, don't suffer as somebody who's getting into other people's business, who's a busybody, and who, dare I say, is a gossip. That's what he means. Isn't it nuts to you that Peter just literally stacks this entire lineup of murderer, thief, evildoer, and he says, oh yeah, meddler too. I'm just going to, you know what, throw that one in there as well. It's like he doesn't leave any of us out of this when he says, but let none of you suffer for these things. There's a right kind of suffering. He says, there's a wrong kind of suffering. He says, so don't think if you suffer for any of these types of things that somehow you're sharing in Christ's suffering and somehow you may rejoice 
in the way that I'm laying out to you when his glory is revealed. He's saying, no. He's saying, let none of you suffer as those things. And then he says in 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So what's amazing for us is that when we do sort of get this pushback from people for bearing the name of Christ, and that happens to us in different ways, in different forms, in different variances, what happens with that word ashamed is that people do think that there's something wrong with you, don't they? People think that you are disgraceful. How can you put up with what you're putting up with just for claiming the name of Christ? Isn't there a better way? Isn't there an easier way for you? And what that does is it causes a level of shame to rise up in us. It causes us, it tempts us to pull back. It causes us to question, what am I doing? Like, am, am I walking after God? Am I following Christ? And if I am, why am I? If all of this stuff consistently bears down, and I have people that look at me and think I'm literally just bonkers. Peter says, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in the name. He says, continue to live in a manner that gives glory to God. Don't let that stop you. Don't let that halt you. But let that be the occasion for you to live even more stridently for God's glory. Because this is what he says in 17, which I think is really, really kind of an ominous verse when we get into this entire passage. He says this, and he actually is taking this from uh, Old Testament books like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where God has come to the prophets and said, tell the people, I'm about to clean house. And I'm going to start that cleaning house process in the temple with God's people. And so this is the language that Peter is drawing from in verse 17 when he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So that's the expectation, okay? The expectation now is that there's going to be suffering, but with suffering comes rejoicing. But remember that God starts with the people of God. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And this is what he says. He makes an argument here. He says, and if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes from Proverbs 11.31, and he says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So when Peter says the word judgment here, he's not talking about judgment in the way that we think of the way he's going to judge unbelievers. But judgment is another way of saying discipline. If he disciplines the household of God, if he tests us, if he allows us to go through fiery trials, if it begins with us, can we even imagine what it's going to look like for those who he is going to cast actual judgment on, right? Because at the end of the day, God cares about his church, doesn't he? God purifies his church. He doesn't just let us settle into patterns of worldly disgrace and worldly living, and worldly thinking, and worldly activity that can only stand for so long. Do you guys understand that? Do you guys understand a church of which you can tell no difference from between the church and the world is a church of which God is eventually going to come down in discipline because that doesn't stack up for him. That's not the church. That's not the people he has called and saved. This is a way that God sanctifies 
the church. He purifies the church. So what if you go to church? So what if you come here, right? So what if you get in your car, you get dressed, you yell at your wife, you get the kids ready, you drive here, you walk in, you sit down. So, I mean, I just described a visit to Chuck E. Cheese for all I'm saying. Like, what's the difference? So what did you come to church? What God is going to do is he's going to purify the church. He's going to purify the heart of the church, the actions and the motives and the heart of the church. And then he kind of gives this argument saying, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Don't miss that, obey the gospel of God, okay? You know what he doesn't say there? He doesn't say for those who don't believe the gospel of God. He says for those who don't obey the gospel of God, for those who don't take God's word seriously, and go before the throne of God like we just sang. And repent. And say, Lord, please help me obey your word with joy and with affection. I mean, anybody can believe this stuff, right? I mean, Scripture tells us the demons believe. Scripture tells us that Israel believed. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't, they didn't obey. They didn't obey God. And there's a quantifiable difference. And then when we look at Proverbs 11.31, he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? And this is what he means by that. If Christians, if you, if me, if the church, if we feel the fire of God's discipline and judgment, how much more the world who is not experiencing fiery trials because of grace? See, we experience fiery trials to be tested. And you know what stands, you know what looms as a shadow over all of that is God's grace. Because again, he's conforming us to something. But the only thing that hangs as a shadow over those who God calls through fiery trials who don't know him and don't obey the gospel of God is judgment. And that's sobering for us, isn't it? That's sobering for us. If the righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. So how is that encouraging? Well, because those who obey have a different outcome. So one of the things that the church has a real hard time connecting with is this idea of heart change versus behavioral change, right? And so what Peter is calling for here is is he calling for obedience. And obedience doesn't happen as the result. True obedience doesn't happen as the result of anything other than a true heart change before God, right? But those who obey the gospel will have a different outcome. And then he says this as we get to the end in verse 19. What we've learned is that with suffering comes rejoicing, with suffering comes warning, and then look what he says here in verse 19, because I know this is not like the most Christmassy sermon that we could have picked for our second Sunday of Advent, but we didn't pick it. It's just what we arrived at, um, which is why we preach through the Bible the way we do. I say that a lot, but I need you guys to know that part of expositional preaching, which is going through the Bible book by book by verse by verse, is that we don't get to pick verses. We don't get to skip verses. We just take what comes next 
and we preach through it. And we struggle through it and we wrestle through it to God's glory and for our good. But listen, listen to how this is for our good. Don't miss what Peter is saying to the churches. Again, remember those churches? They're exiles, they're sojourners. They're people who are suffering for holding to the name of Christ. They're people which saying, I am a Christian, costs something. I don't know what it costs you. I don't know what bearing the name of Christ costs you. I don't know what it costs me, right? Because none of you are mad, well, at least I think, just see me after the service. I don't know if any of you are mad at me because I am evoking the name of Christ when I preach. Because I'm preaching through God's word, right? And I hang out with some of you, and none of you are mad at me. Because I'm speaking the name of Christ, right? I hang out with a lot of pastors. Dudes just aren't super mad at me. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about things that God is doing in our life and, you know, and, and some of the challenges and some of the struggles of how God is working in our heart. Nobody gets mad about any of that, right? But that's because we're talking about people who are saved. So bearing the name of Christ to people who aren't saved is what Peter is locking us into. But this is what he says in verse 19. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that might be the most encouraging verse in the entire book, and it might really be kind of a summation of the entire book. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Do you get that according to God's will part? Remember how some of you were real freaking out when we went through the election thing, you know, a few weeks ago? Oh, my gosh, you know, you mean God has ordained everything, and he's in, in control of everything. And you mean that, like, you know, uh, everything that happens, there's not a stray molecule that's outside of his sovereign control? Yeah. Like, this is what he's talking about right here. Let those of you who suffer according to God's will. You know what that does for us? That gives us hope. You know what that does for us right there? That eliminates fate and superstition of which many of you are just engrossed in. Oh, no, if I do this, this is going to happen. Oh, no, I lived this kind of life. Or you, or, you, or you use this kind of, you know, it's a generational curse. Use that kind of language, right? It starts getting real spooky. But you know what this verse does? Who suffer according to God's will, it eliminates that. It reminds us that nothing falls outside of his control. It means nothing is arbitrary. That has to help you. That has to help you when your child dies. That has to help you when you lose your job. That has to help you. When everything's falling apart, when relationships with your family aren't reconciled, and they can't be, that has to help you. It has to help you. According to God's will, he says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. It means that you can give yourself to God and it's safe and you are safe. It's like a bank, right? I mean, okay, forget the like two of you in here that don't trust banks, but for the rest of us normal people, listen. Like, I'm not worried right now about the tens of dollars that are in my bank account at Chase Bank. I'm just not, I'm not thinking about it. Like, I'm just not worried. It's safe. Like, when I go there tomorrow, I'm going to be able to draw that $7 out, and I'm going to have some cash. I've entrusted, I've entrusted that money to Chase Bank. Peter says, when you suffer according to God's will, entrust your soul to the most trustworthy person. It's safekeeping. 
You know why we can do this? Because Jesus did that. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. We're given the language that Jesus used on the cross in Psalm 31 when he said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Entrust your souls to, what, what does he say here? A faithful creator while doing good. You know, my daughter is a painter. She paints. And, um, I mean, obviously I think she's good. But, you know, I don't, like I, I've never met like a paint critic. So maybe one of you guys are a paint critic and you'd come up and you'd be like, eh. You know, but then you'd be afraid to say that to me because it's my daughter. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm just going to be a, a paint critic right now and, and say that her paintings are like, you know, they're like Picasso's to me. You know, Bethy, if you're listening to this, I think your painting is the money. Um, but here's what's interesting when I've watched her paint. Um, the canvas, okay, is her canvas. It's never outside of her control. The canvas is never outside of the control of the painter. And God as our faithful creator is like our painter, and we are like his canvas. And anything that he paints on us, anything that he adds to us, whether it's a fiery trial or something to test us, it's not for nothing, and it's never outside of his control because we are his canvas, and he is faithful just like he was faithful to his own son. And then he says at the end here, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's go back to verse 2, verse 12, and he just kind of repeats what he said in verse 2.12 when he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So once again, Peter encourages the people to trust their souls to a faithful creator and continue to do those good works of which people that don't know God might see those good works and glorify God someday, someday when God uses those things to draw them into their own salvation. So here's how I'm going to end today. The question is this, is your suffering secure? Is your suffering secure? The world has no expectation for the end of their suffering other than the doctors figured it out or someday I'm going to die and that's when my pain will decrease. That's what they think. And that's a harsh, harsh, scary, frightening ending for us to consider and contemplate. What's interesting about what Peter is instructing us with today is that Christians experience fiery trials now and sometimes the world doesn't. But the world will experience fiery judgment later. So we don't say that with any kind of glee or any kind of glibness or any kind of harshness. I mean, that's not very Christmassy, Ronnie. I know. But you know what? It, it, it actually is. It is in a way. When we think about Jesus, when we let our minds reading these passages about judgment and suffering, when we let our minds go back to Christ, when we let our minds go back to a loving Father who understands what it is to lose a son, when we understand that Jesus emptied himself, when we understand that he suffered more than any of us will ever suffer, that he knows pain, that he knows grief, that he knows temptation, that he knows sorrow, that he knows loss. 
And again, that he has a father who understands what it is to lose a child. What this does is it allows us to become more Christ-minded. So as we expect to go through these fiery trials, what we understand is it, we can take the opportunity to walk and to run and to go find some kind of solace in something else, right? Something that's going to give us some temporary form, if even that, of rejoicing. Because great, I'm not left in that place. I found a way to numb the pain. I found a way to medicate the pain. And Peter's saying none of that's good enough. None of that's good enough. But if we go to Christ, we understand what the end is. We understand what the glory is that awaits us. And you know what this causes us to do? It causes us finally to begin to have a right view of God as loving Father and Jesus as His suffering Son. And it causes us to have a right view of ourselves as breathing sinners who, like R.C. Sproul, I think very wisely pointed out, asked the question, not that we suffer so much, but why do we suffer so little, given that we are sinners, that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards titled his most famous, famous sermon. Listen, as we end. Because we didn't dive into a lot of these questions, but let me just say this. We don't know why, listen, we don't know why God allows suffering. Ultimately, we have different answers for different ways that we suffer, but no one answer encapsulates all the different ways and reasons why we suffer. We don't know why God allows suffering. Part of that is because God is all-knowing, and we are not all-knowing. His reasons and His consequences are beyond our knowledge. That's not a cop-out. That's true. That's having a right view of God. But you know, the cross, listen, is how we know God isn't unloving in our suffering because He does allow suffering. And our expectations, as Peter has pointed out to us here, are that we are going to suffer. But here's what we're going to end with. You have a greater expectation than suffering. You have a greater expectation that goes beyond merely suffering. And the greater expectation you have is that one day you will meet Christ in glory of whose suffering that you shared in, of which now you can rejoice because the Spirit of God and of glory is resting upon you. And in that, we can all say, Amen. Let's pray. God, you are with us as we struggle through these passages. You are not distant from us as we face these words that we grasp to understand, that we try to believe, that we struggle through. Thank you for being gracious and patient to us, Lord, as we go through a book like 1 Peter, as we're told all the different ways that we might struggle in a world that has rejected you and rebelled against you, a world that we are familiar with because we were once part of a group of people that rebelled and rejected you. But Lord, 
we also know that you are a loving, compassionate, gracious God in that you let your son suffer so that, not that we would never experience suffering on earth, but that the suffering we experience on earth would be the last suffering we ever experience. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have such a great truth to comfort us in this holiday season. We thank you that we have such a great, great hope and comfort as we consider what it is that you did when you sent Jesus as you lost your son to suffering and who you raised again as you will do us and we will someday be alive in Christ in glory for all eternity and for that we hope and we thank you for and we look forward to in the same way that we anticipate the coming of your son in this Advent season. So Lord, let that be our heart and hope. We pray today and the church said, amen.